Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web. With breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is why you're wearing headphones. This is helping you to procrastinate effectively. How are you today? It's good to be with you. Uh, I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. Thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Ariel Schrag. She has a new novel out. It's called Adam. It's available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Uh, I'm going to be talking with her in just a minute. Uh, it's been a busy day. I was at my daughter's preschool graduation this morning, uh, experiencing social anxiety. That's what I did. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not uh, historically a person who has social problems. I, I mean, I can be a little anxious, just like anybody in a, in a room full of people where there's a lot of small talk happening and it's a little bit overwhelming. Uh, but I can do it. I'm friendly. Uh, I can talk. I like people. I think. But, uh, you know, something about this parenthood thing and the, the school environment in Los Angeles, and uh, going to these events, I don't know what to do. So what I usually wind up doing is going to the back of the room, uh, in the corner, finding a chair, sitting on it, 
and then sort of folding in on myself and staring into my telephone. <laughs> that's healthy, right? That's what, you, that's what you're supposed to do at these things. But then all these people are just chit-chatting and, you know, it's like, well, how do you, you know, did I used to be able to do this and now I can't do it anymore? Am I regressing as a human being? Or maybe it's good. I don't know. What am I supposed to do? Uh, I'm at a loss for words. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I think I just sit there. <laughs> I think that's my MO. I don't mean to be a dick. I wonder if these people think I'm an asshole. But see, part of my like part of my motivation, it's not like it's not like just like, oh fuck you, I don't want to talk to you. It's more like, you know what, I'll just be polite and sit in the back because Nobody likes these things. Nobody wants the small talk. Let's all just understand that. And let's all just sit down quietly and watch our kids and love our kids and take our pictures. And then we leave. Nobody's there. to. Are people there to mingle? Are there actual like minglers there? I guess so in Los Angeles, but I don't know. I don't know how to mingle anymore. I've lost my mingling ability. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest, uh, once again, is Ariel Schrag. Her new novel, Adam, uh, has been garnering rave reviews and is available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Uh, she's a very talented woman. She's a polymath, if you will. Uh, in addition to writing fiction, she's also written and uh, illustrated several critically acclaimed graphic memoirs, uh, and she's written for television uh, for the shows The L Word and How to Make It in America, which you uh, may be familiar with. And she's also been the subject of a documentary film. So there's a lot to talk about, and I hope you guys enjoy this one. I certainly enjoyed talking with her. Here she is. This is Ariel Schrag, and her new novel, once again, is called Adam. I'm in my, well, I live in a railroad apartment, uh, what does that mean? In, in Williamsburg. So basically that means that there are four, I would say there are four rooms in my apartment, but they're all connected kind of like in one long hallway. So there's the kitchen, there's a sort of couch TV den area, there's an office and there's a bedroom. And I am sitting on the couch. It sounds, you know, what it sounds area. like when I was uh, growing up, like I would, my parents are from the South and I would go down to Louisiana and they called those shotgun houses. Ah, yes, that's I like that. So like a, a long rectangle, uh, if you wanted a more violent interpretation nice. of your living quarters. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> it's a 
little, it's a little more edgy. Yeah, a little edgier. But that, I mean, that's the way it is, right? Like room after room, kind of stacked in like a long rectangle, basically. Yeah, exactly. So there's aren't there aren't any doors, you know. It, it feels it, it makes what is a, a pretty small apartment actually feel large and spacious. And there's windows on either end, so it's great. Cool. And really but like you're it. from Berkeley. Yes. And you're sort of like a prodigy, you know. You're one of these people who started, who kind of came out of the gate somewhat fully formed. I mean, you, you were doing stuff that was uh, publishable in, as a teenager. Well, it was self-publishable at first. Well, but I mean, it was but like yes. it was well received. Anyone can do it. Well, not, but that's I mean, that, self-publish. I don't, I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, anyone can self-publish. But it feels like you had, uh, you know, like what is it? Prodigious tendencies. You were kind of a prodigy, no? I, I don't know. That's sort of, it's a sort of embarrassing word, I guess. I feel like, see, I was almost on the Mickey Mouse Club when I was 12. Uh, I took an animation class and was really obsessed with animation for a while and ended up doing something like 2,000 drawings, so like a, a three-minute animated short. And somehow my animation teacher contacted the Mickey Mouse Club and for a minute there, I was going to, like, fly to Orlando and be on it. And I feel like if that had happened, I would officially be a prodigy. Yeah. But it fell through. And uh... <laughs> that would have been like that would have been like Britney Spears. Would that, would that have been like Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, Ryan Gosling? Mickey Mouse Club? Yeah. They, who knows? They could have been in the background. And then, like, I would have come on and, and like, introduced my weird comic. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, you weren't going in there to, like, do, like, song and dance routines. You were going in there to, like, what, do animations? Uh, well, I made this. So I made this three-minute animated short called uh, Baby, <laughs> and it was like about a baby that traveled around and like stole someone's toupee and stuff, And it, but it was, you know, it did take like an insane amount of work, because this was all hand-drawn animation, this is all, you know, before, or not before computers, but this was... I did this in a class where we basically drew everything by hand and then the teacher would, you know, just using a stop motion camera would take each a, a picture of each frame. So yeah, it I went like that. It's so funny. I went to film school and like it was pre, it was just at the cusp of digital. So like everyone, I had a buddy. Like my closest friend in film school was uh, an animator, and he was like he had like the old Bolex camera, like shooting, like, mm -hmm. clicking frame after frame over a light box. Yeah. Like animation is some tedious stuff. I just don't have the patience. Oh yeah, I mean I I enjoyed it as a kid, but I you know I was sort of like you know I think I'm going to stick with comics where you can sort of get to the story quicker and do it on your own. I mean it became very clear that animation was not going to be something that I could you know uh, by myself tell long convoluted stories with it just because the labor was just too much right. for one person. Right. What about like collaboration? Are you a coll are you able to collaborate? Because you've worked on TV too, so you've sat in writers' rooms. Like does that process uh bother you or do you prefer do you like strongly prefer working on your own with no interference from other human beings <laughs> uh, well there's i like both and the so working on tv writing for the l word was my first collaborative work experience and i definitely until then had sort of really thought of art and writing as a very solo pursuit and that kind of opened me up to the fun that can be had from creating something collaboratively. And you're not, it's like not just collaborating with the other writers, but in TV and film, you're collaborating with the director, you're collaborating with the actors, you're collaborating with the producers, you're collaborating with everybody on set really. So it's just, you know, it's mass collaboration. And after, and comics is sort of the opposite in that it's so, there's something about comics that is so, solitary. I think because, you know, 
also back when I first started comics, they weren't really being published for the large part by larger publishers. They were very much still a sort of underground phenomenon or a very alternative phenomenon. And so you weren't even working with an editor. You know, most you'd, you'd find maybe a publisher like Slave Labor Graphics, but nobody was going in and like trying to change anything. And so it was a very sort of... Um, uh, very personal and, and isolating activity. So in a way, it was it was great to take a break and and see what it was like to work with other people. But I, I like being able to go back and forth to actually just be around other people. <laughs> like, yeah, to, exactly. To, to emerge for, to emerge from your railroad apartment and be like, oh, I, I wouldn't want to just uh, you know only do the solo stuff. You, you get too crazy. There's too much cabin fever and yeah. It's not good for the soul. So okay, so uh, Berkeley though, I'm fascinated with Berkeley, like just because it seems like such a far cry from the the weird like Midwestern conservative Indiana suburb that I grew up in. Like I picture it as some sort of like Valhalla. But I have fr- I had a friend in college who was from Berkeley, and he was like sneering. I, w- I went to Boulder for undergrad, and he was like the one guy who was like sneering at hippies and hated it all and. You know, it's yeah. like it's like so. Wherever you grow up, you wind up pissed off at whatever like the perva- you know pervasive you know uh, milieu is or whatever. And you're is that how you are? Are you anti hippie? Well, that is really funny because I actually did also grow up hating hippies. I mean, with such a passion that I mean, there was nothing worse to me than a hippie. And then I moved to New York, and everybody's like, "Oh, they're hippies!" Yeah, and I'm like, "What?" Ew, hippies! It's disgusting. <laughs> I mean, they were just like the fucking like the drum circles nonstop, and like patchouli and weed smoke everywhere. I mean, I also yeah, I also grew up hating smoking pot because it was ubiquitous, and so you know, you just you do kind of have to hate where you come from. Have you warmed up any at all? I mean, like, have, like have you like are you now nostalgic for it? Or, I guess I'm, I guess I'm not nostalgic for like, you know. Some, some... I wouldn't say I'm nostalgic for it, and I, and I don't have, like, suddenly hippie pot-smoking pride, <laughs> but I do have a fondness that I feel when I go home, yeah. um, certainly, like, a feeling of, well, you know, this is where I come from, and it, and it feels nice, and I mean, is it a, what's it like? But I would never get, like, a weed leaf tattooed on my arm the way somebody might get, like, their home state tattooed on their arm. Yeah. I, I can't get a tattoo. I've, I've talked about this on the show. I, I can't get a tattoo because I can't decide. It's the, dis- yeah. it's, like the, it's the finality or like the permanence of that decision that just that eludes me. But Well, uh, you're probably too old now, too. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I made this decision. <laughs> no, I really did. When I was 23, I was like, I have to get a tattoo now or it will be too late because then I can't blame it on youth. I'm going to start getting I'm almost 40. I'm going to start getting inked up once I'm in my 40s. <laughs> I think that once, or once you pass 50, I think you can just start getting a ton of tattoos. I'm going to just get like... But there's a certain age, like in between, I think, 25 and 45, you have to really stand by your tattoo. Like you can't really, it has to be something that you uh, sort of take responsibility for. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. You can't be like, oh, I was fucked up in college. Yeah. You know, it's like, this is a, I mean, I don't know. uh, That's the part of it, I think. And I was always that way. I just never, it never really occurred to me that like I needed something permanently on my body. So when you were, when you were 20, (laughs) when we, when you were 23, did you get a tattoo? Is that what you were saying? I did. I, me and my best friend in college went on a road trip to Texas and we both got small envelopes tattooed on our ankles. What does that mean? What's the envelope? I, who knows? (laughs) It means an envelope, really? but you can. There's a lot. Well, you can say that it means a lot of things. You can tell girls that it's a secret love letter to them, 
where you can tell people that it's, you know, yeah. all your secrets. There's, yeah, it's open to interpretation, but honestly, it was just sort of like we didn't know what to get, and I was like, <laughs> I just want to get something simple, like an envelope. Or you, you just get, like, the, like the, the Chinese symbol for something, just to let you know. Oh, good God. Yeah. You've seen a few of those in Berkeley, I bet. Oh, yes. Um, okay. And, yin, and the, the yin-yang symbols. The yin, yeah, the yin-yang, and then maybe some, like, yeah. in, some Indian feathers on the scapula or something, like people. Yeah, could, yeah. Like there's lots of that, but... A lot, of, uh, a lot of phoenix rising from the ashes wings <laughs> on the back of girls. Um, so, uh, but, you know, growing up, like, happy childhood, it seems like such a beautiful place. And, it, I mean, is it, like, what's good about Berkeley? Like, what did you look, what do you look back on and say, I'm glad I grew up there because of X? Well, I mean, you know, I wrote these autobiographical comics about being in high school in Berkeley. And a large part of the comics were my experience coming out and dating girls. And a lot of people will read the comics and be like, I don't understand. Like, where is this? Where there's like a million gay people and nobody cares. Right. But that was Berkeley. Like, it just, I mean, there were like a thousand gay people at my high school. Like, and people, you just, it was never really a social issue. Um, which isn't to say that, you know, I didn't go through feelings of like, oh, what is this? Uh, you know, I feel different. I definitely had those because you're still living in the world, but I certainly never experienced any um, oppression, uh, you know, literal oppression or ostracized or felt like I was ostracized um, and your parents, your parents by were, anyone. Your parents were cool. Like it was just totally... Yeah, they didn't care. I mean, it's just, it was like, it was fine. Um and, you know, and I think, but there was also like, there was a sort of, there was also this kind of political thrust going on in Berkeley. So everybody was very super conscious of like, you know, um, whether something was politically correct or not. And so but in when, a way when, that, when that is that ever, feel, when, is, when is that ever not the case in Berkeley, like a political thrust and like political correctness? Yeah, I'm sure it's still going on. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I can only really speak for the eighties and nineties, but well, that's cool, though. I mean, because, you know, I can speak from an opposite experience. I mean, there was like an out gay uh, guy in the grade below me, which was sort of interesting because he was like the grandson of the athletic director. And it was kind of like this asynchronous situation. So it wasn't like totally oppressive at my high school, but it certainly wasn't like like that open. Uh, and the other thing that, that comes to mind when you talk about Berkeley and the environment that you grew up in with like, you know, what did you say? Like there were there were a lot of gay students in your school. Um, do you think like numbers wise, it was like truly unusual, uh, or do you think it was just that like people were out and so you got to see who was actually having same sex relationships? Do you know what I'm saying? Cause like, it, uh, I, I think it was both. I mean, I think that it was in large part also, there was a, a trend to be bisexual and people get uncomfortable, you know, when people when I say this or when people say this, when people call things like sexuality or gender identity or whatever a trend, but things can absolutely be a trend. And that doesn't mean that they're not real for some people. And it also doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with changing your mind or being fluid. Right. And, you know, so when I was in high school, like every girl was bi. Like if you weren't bi, you were really boring and something was wrong with you. <laughs> and some of those girls, you know, moved from being bi to being gay. And some of those girls moved from being bi to being gay to being straight. And, you know, whatever. Uh, it doesn't really matter. I think I think all of that should be embraced. Okay. So, like, what about the whole, like, one through ten scale, like, five being, like, bi, <laughs> one? Do you buy into that? I mean, is that – because, like, 
I, I think that I think that uh, sexual identity is fluid. That makes sense to me. Like I'm a hetero guy, but the way that I always uh, think of it is that like if I were stuck on an island with like one other dude. <laughs> Like, uh-huh. I think I'd probably fuck him eventually. <laughs> probably. And or get fucked by him. Yeah, I'd be like, all right, we're stuck. Like this it's just the two of us. Let's do this. You know, but uh I can see how it could be fluid and I'm just you gotta try to be honest about it. Like I'm sure. like I think like if one is like super aggro heterosexual, like firing shotguns and you know what I'm saying, like just like the total bro. Uh and then five is is by I'd say I'm probably like a three and a half or a four. Like I'm coming, I you know, I'm a sensitive hetero guy, but I'm, hetero, <laughs> but I'm hetero. <laughs> well, plenty of gay guys are not sensitive. So yeah. it doesn't have, you don't have to equate those two, but I, I do agree. I mean, I've always sort of considered myself, um, 80% gay, 20% straight or whatever. It's somewhere along that spectrum. And I mean, you know, and I think that 80, 20 is, it's kind of a joke, but it's also kind of serious. Um, you know, and that's really just kind of looking at, well, who have I dated and who do I find myself thinking about or what do I want? You know, I mean, I mean, who knows? I think that it, ultimately it's kind of ridiculous to put a label on stuff like that and it causes more stress than it needs to. Well, but, uh, I, but I, think, that, I think the fluidity, I think the issue of fluidity and just the possibility of fluidity in like an 80-20 situation is what freaks people out, you know, like or, yeah. or some people out anyway. You have these like you know, people who are really attached to the idea of themselves as being straight people uh, in particular. And the notion that like that might somehow not be like a fixed identity is what I think causes lots of fear. And, you know, well, it also kind of annoys me how the like the women that you tend to find that are really vocal and open about being bisexual are almost always married to men. And it kind of it feels like, it, you know, celebrities or, or whatever. And it, it starts to feel like this thing, like, well, I, this is the thing that makes me special. I'm bisexual. I, and I don't care if they dated a woman that slept with a woman or whatever. Like, it just, why do you need to keep talking about it? Like, no one cares that you're bisexual. I mean, I guess it's great to have visibility, but you never hear lesbians talking about being bisexual. And why not? Like, plenty of them are, too. It's branding. It makes, you feel, it makes, it makes women hotter to men. I think that's what yeah. it is. You know, it's like, oh, I'm, I, I had a bi period. It's like, the Angelina Jolie thing like every straight guy in America wants to hear that she once hooked up with like a hot totally it becomes it becomes some other thing you know I would love to hear more straight men talking about occasional attraction to other men and more lesbians talking about occasional attraction to other men just something outside of the same old you know bisexual woman that's now with a man yeah well I mean I feel like that's the thing like I look at guys and I'm like Okay, that's a really good-looking guy. But I remember before I was married, I was like always looking at guys who were good-looking and being like, "Okay, how do I like somehow like adopt that style, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. so that I can then use it to like you know attract women?" Do you know what I'm saying? Like well, that. Was- I do. I mean, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with Julia Lewis and Gwen Stefani. But I also kind of wanted to be them. And the line between wanting to be them and wanting to have sex with them was very blurry. I, I think it can be confusing for everyone. I love Gwen Stefani. I always, I, I think she's the, like, I've had this argument recently. Um, I think she's the best pop star going. And, like, uh, I feel like Beyonce gets all this credit and everyone, like, you know, it's like this huge, like, uh, like almost like deity worship. And I'm like, yeah, don't forget about Gwen. She's quietly no, just awesome. don't forget awesome. about Gwen. <laughs> You don't see her. I will never forget about Gwen. Yeah, no, there's something sort of awesome about her. I feel like she does it all. Like, she does the style. She's got a good band. She's got this great voice. And 
Uh, yeah, she's amazing. She's awesome. Yeah, I'll have to do an entire episode about how much I love Gwen Stefani. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so you're growing up in Berkeley. Uh, happy childhood, happy family. It sounds like, relatively. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, my parents got divorced when I was in high school. That wasn't great, but for the most part, I would say I had a happy childhood. That's you... such a weird phrase. A happy childhood. I mean, <laughs> well, but childhood I mean... is like terrifying and dark. I think actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but I mean, on the surface, can seem very happy. But like you know, you had parents who gave a shit about you. Nothing like yes, su- absolutely. Nothing... Very supportive parents. Yes. Yeah. Nothing super horrific happened to you. No. Okay, so, but did you, okay, this divorce, because, you know, divorce with kids, uh, especially adolescents, you know, you're already sort of like a powder keg in that, in that state anyhow, but, like, when that happened, did you have, like, a, a, a backlash or some sort of, like, pronounced rebellion or anything? I mean, I went on to sort of detail it explicitly in my comic in a way that sort of, I have to say, appalls me now, that it was, you know, to be writing about such intimate details of my parents' lives in, you know, in something that I knew was going to be published, but I think that that was part of my way of coping with it. And what did they, how did they react to that? I mean, they were always really supportive and I really appreciate that in them. You know, I think that it, it, it made them uncomfortable at certain points, uh, but they never told me not to do it. Yeah. That's cool. That's generous. And, yeah. and but you know, I, I mean, they, they must've also probably been looking at it like, well, she could be like on crystal meth coping with this but <laughs> yes. instead she's drawing cartoons <laughs> i mean and they both you know came from come from artistic backgrounds my dad used to be a an artist and an actor and my mom is a composer and i think that they understood how important it was to me and and that was a huge privilege just to come from a family where art is respected so yeah they got it they got it yeah so and did you have siblings i have a younger sister she's two and a half years younger okay and and she got the art bug too, or? Yeah, she's also a cartoonist. Uh, her profession is a public defender, but she also does art. Okay, wow. So you're the eldest. Yes. Um, and you went to after after high school. You went to Columbia. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, and and you had already done these comics. You self published them, and started passing them around to like classmates and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I sold. I self published for. A couple years just using the you know photocopy store and, and going to comic book conventions and then midway through high school I switched over to the small comics publisher Slave Labor Graphics and then after I graduated college I moved the books over to Simon and Schuster. Okay, so what is it and what is it about comics? Because I never, I mean, I guess I was sort of into them when I was uh, in elementary school. Like I remember reading. Like Creep Show, I remember reading that comic for some reason, and I remember reading some like Incredible Hulk stuff. But like, I was never like super deep into it. Like, do you know why certain people, or do you have any theories on why you gravitated towards that? I mean, I think I wonder. My dad definitely was a really good artist, a good drawer, and I I wonder if I, you know, inherited some kind of talent from him. My mom also always really encouraged me and my sister to draw. So I just grew up drawing all the time. And so I think part of my, and, and then would sort of see, uh, would see, watch like Disney comic, uh, Disney cartoons and read like Calvin and Hobbes and sort of be able to emulate that and be, so I don't really know, you know, whether it was that I was inspired by them or that it was something that I was sort of naturally good at. So then worked harder at, I think it was kind of a combination but I always really responded to the exaggerated emotion in cartoons, something that you see 
in, you know, especially in Disney movies, which is part of why uh, there was that article in the New York Times a while ago about the autistic boy who was able to communicate through Disney animation films. And I thought that was really fascinating because there really is something about the exaggerated emotion of a cartoon that hits you to your core and, and, and really, I think, is felt to me like this pure form of expression. And so I think that really appealed to me. And, I, and, it, and it appealed to me that comics appealed to me because they were something, like I was saying before, I could do at home alone all by myself. I didn't need anyone else. You know, it never occurred to me to be like a film director or anything because that, you know, at least from my perspective, that required a camera and actors and a set, like just stuff that I couldn't, that I wasn't really thinking about. A comic was something I could handle myself, I could do by myself. And so I did it. Okay. And so it, like, with, I, I get the whole thing about like the oversized emotions and like the purity of that and how that might like register, especially with you as a child. Yeah. But, like at what point did you start to get into like subversive comics and when did like that? Well, this is, that's what really started to, that was when I really became passionate about comics because I think it was so fascinating to me that this medium that from what I could tell had been reserved for children, Disney cartoons, very sanitized newspaper strips, the idea that that could be subverted in the work of R. Crumb or Art Spiegelman who are writing about sex or very serious dark issues like the Holocaust, that was so interesting to me uh, because it was so rare the idea of, you know, taking this form and, and twisting it and seeing it in, a, in another light. And so that was a big inspiration to me to sort of take a form that I was used to being used for a certain type of content and tell a different kind of story through it. So R. Crumb was a, uh, you were a fan of his? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. when did you see that document? I'm assuming you've seen that documentary. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would, I would say a fan, I don't know. Like, I, I read the R. Crumb comics at a fairly young age because I discovered them in my dad's office secretly and so they had a kind of power to me because they were hidden and I knew that they were something that I probably shouldn't be looking at and they excited me but I wouldn't say that I connected with them well I mean speaking of the story I mean it, it interested me and I think he's an amazing artist but uh, you know, was I relating to the story of Fritz the Cat? Not really. I was more just fascinated by it. Mouse, on the other hand, was something where I was like, oh, my God, I want to be able to create something like this, a story that obviously means so much to the creator. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, R. Crumb's like a really like like crazy gifted dude, but like like emotionally connecting with people doesn't seem to be his strong suit. <laughs> No, <laughs> you know. I mean, I love that he basically like put his id and his craziest fantasies on paper. I mean, that in itself is well, just fascinating. And just like off the off the charts, like gifted as an as a visual artist. Just oh to, yeah, unbelievably. Yeah, I can't even get over how good he is at drawing. But um, okay, so you get to New York City. You must have been a good student. You went to Columbia, so you were a good mm-hmm. good student in high school. I loved school. I couldn't get enough of it. Okay, yeah. I'm like, like I, I, I wasn't such a fan, but now I'm like, God, I wish I could go back. <laughs> it's like the womb. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so you go to Columbia, you're in New York City. Uh, big adjustment, or I guess, I mean, was it a big adjustment coming from Berkeley? Well, I first, I took a year off before going to college, and I first lived in Brooklyn uh, to finish working on my comics, which I hadn't completed the last comic, likewise. So... I spent that year sort of working odd jobs and, uh, and and finishing my comic. And so that was sort of my first. So in a way, I kind of 
I think it made me appreciate college more when I did get to it because I was living in this, you know, windowless basement that was flooding all the time and like working terrible jobs at shitty comic book stores and movie theaters and bookstores and being like a medical research subject doing phone sex like i really did every weird odd job in that year um, it's good for your work though right to support myself yeah it was i think it was really good i mean a lot of that year actually it went into my novel adam i think adam is in, in large part based on that on that gap year that i took um but then when i arrived at college i was like oh my god this is such a utopia like there's a fucking dining hall downstairs from my dorm and there's like frisbee and just like movie night like it just seemed like so ridiculously plush okay but you had like this is the thing like you know not to like bang on like the whole prodigy drum but like you get out of high school why did you take the gap year did you want to go over and like establish residency or did you just want to take a time out in between or were you that focused on your your art I just wasn't finished with my comic. I needed to finish it. It was it was the most important thing to me. See, that's that's unusual. Just to have anything that you're actually like that's important to you <laughs> when you're eighteen. <laughs> you know. Uh, so you you. I mean, what was your ambition? Did you have things in your head uh, ordered, or did you have a target? Like, okay, I'm going to finish this thing. I'm going to get it published. I'm going to become the next. Some, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like, well, what? I mean, yeah, I definitely always dreamt very big. I mean, I would just have fantasies of like the name of my book on a billboard, which is so ridiculous because no book is ever on a billboard. Wait, Je- <laughs> Jeffrey, I- Jeffrey Eugenity is in his, uh, in his like scarf in Times Square, right? Is he, is he on a billboard? He was. For, back, for his back, novel? Back when, the mar- <laughs> back when the marriage plot came out, that was like all the rage. Oh my God. Well, that's, that's good to know. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I had, I was slave labor graphics at the time, so I knew that my book was going to you know, be published, published on a relatively small scale because they weren't a huge publisher, but it was going to be published. And I just, I mean, likewise was just my, it was like my manifesto. It was like over 400 pages and I, I sort of poured everything into it and just needed to, I had also become really, I mean, like I really cared about the comic and was very ambitious, but it had also become a sort of psychological crutch it was um i mean i would say that my obsession with it had veered slightly into the unhealthy in that it i was um filtering all my experiences through the comic nothing mattered outside of the comic like it really did become a an obsession well it was like therapeutic i mean i know that, that gets overused in the context of art but i mean you, yeah. were, you were working shit out in your comic book uh, or making it worse. I can't tell. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like I spent a year and then years and years after that inking this comic likewise about my 12th grade year of high school, just obsessing over this one girl and breaking down every conversation I had with her and <laughs> scrutinizing every horrible thing that was going on with my parents. I mean, I don't know. Is it is it great to just live in that world for way longer than it goes on? Yeah, I don't I know. I can't tell. Well, but I mean, there's something to be said about the level of candor that you were willing to uh, engage in and share and then eventually share when you published because, I mean, how old were you? 18 years old? Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's something that your comics have been noted for uh, repeatedly. It's just the level of um, transparency, or you know, the, you're willing to kind of go there, 
And yeah, I mean, it sort of surprises me, but I don't. I definitely don't regret it. But I, I'm thinking that that has something to do with the uh, environment that you were brought up in. Like, it wasn't a punitive environment when it came to self-expression of who you were. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, like where I'm from, and I was raised Catholic, so it's like a double whammy. It's like everything's like, oh, oh yeah. you know. And and you know what? I'm kind of reacting. I've reacted against that in my life. Like, I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm very repressed in terms of my communication. Like, got to give my parents some credit, but. Um, I don't know, maybe like at that young of an age to have that much uh, confidence in terms of uh, showing people the details. That's not normal. Yeah, I mean, I definitely would credit, you know, my parents and, and the environment I grew up in with the sort of level of just I, I never like I knew I knew that what I was doing was unusual, but I never thought that it was wrong. And I always and, and the thing is that like. My ultimate goal was always just to, to tell a really good story and to write something and share something that was important to me. And I couldn't see how that would ever be bad. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that, and, you know, that's, I just feel like the, the level of productivity and like that level of obsessiveness and just having a clear idea of what you want to say at that age is not, uh, that's unique. Yeah. So, okay. So you get to Columbia, you major in English. Mm-hmm. You do that whole thing for four years. What do you do with the comic books once they're done? Like, did you take those to um, Slave Labor and say, this is it? Or, Well, so basically, Slave Labor continued to publish them. And then when I finished Likewise, I didn't finish Likewise until I graduated college and inking it. So I wrote it in the year that I took off, like a penciled rough draft. And then it took me years and years to ink and letter and all the unbelievable labor that goes into making a comic. And so I graduated and I wanted to, at this point I'd had um, killer films had approached me about um, adapting my book potential into a movie. And through that, I was able to get an agent. And then I felt that now, well, now that I have this agent and more sort of opportunities, I wanted to try to find a bigger publisher for likewise. And so that's when I, ended up signing all of the books with Simon & Schuster. And so they republished the older books and then published Likewise for the first time. And how old were you then? Like 21, 22 years old? No. So this didn't... The reissue of the books didn't come out until I was like 28. 20, but still young. I guess. <laughs> and so, and that, But there was also... I think you skipped over. There was a document, like a short documentary made about you while you were in college. Yeah, when I was my senior year, the very end of my senior year, um, a woman, Sharon Barnes, shot a documentary short. Called? A confession. Okay. And it went, like this was on like PBS and stuff. Like there was a... It was yeah, a, yeah. And, and so what was that, what was that experience like? I mean, it must, it must have been kind of, kind of a heady experience to be the subject of a documentary while you're still in college. It was fun. Um, it was also exhausting. I mean, you don't really realize how tiring it is to have a camera on you all day long until it happens. Um, but yeah, I was I was really excited to be doing it, and I and I think them it came out really well. I find it embarrassing to watch now, but I think that that's you know the way it should be. I guess if you're watching yourself ten years ago. Um, but it was, yeah, it was great. And she, you know, interviewed all my friends and my family and my grandmother, who has since passed away. So it's really nice to be able to see footage of her. And, and my grandmother was also, you know, really supportive of me and, and you know, come, even coming from a different generation, totally accepted that I had these strange, sexually explicit books. And, 
was behind me 100%. I love I love it when grandmas like you know grandparents are cool like that. Like there's something super charming about it. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean you could tell that like it made her uncomfortable but that she ultimately like but like that she more than that that she was proud of me and and believed that they were important. Yeah. And plus like, you know, you just have to have some, some awareness that like things change in life. Like you're like, I'm going to get old one day and I'm going to look at, hopefully be able to look at a grandchild of mine or something and just be like, they are like aliens to me, but that's as it should be. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So uh, let's get to, um, like television work, uh, because you've done some of that. I want, I'm interested to know how that all went down and how you got, um, you know, staffed on the L word and, um, you know, like how did, how did you get there? Well, so basically it was, you know, my senior year of high school when I got, when I had this meeting with Killer Films about adapting uh, my book Potential, which was super exciting. And I was, I was a huge fan of their movies. And so I was, well, like, you what, know, I'd what never... movies? This was like the Boys Don't Cry? Yeah. So this was like the, this was like the very early 2000s. And so they had done like Hedwig and Angry Inch and boys don't cry and um you know just they they had an aesthetic that really appealed to me um all the Todd Haynes movies and and so Velvet Goldmine and and uh I had never really thought about turning my comics into a movie I think you know it wasn't something that appealed to me at all um before because just movies always seem to kind of cheapen things but I really believed that killer films was going to be able to do right by it and so then I ended up writing the screenplay for Potential, and through that I was ended up working with an entertainment lawyer who represented uh, Rose Trochet, who was a producer on The L Word, and I told her that I wanted to write for The L Word, and so she ended up passing along my screenplay to Rose and Eileen Chaikin, and, and then I was hired. Wow. And that was in L.A.? Or was it in New York? And so then I moved to L.A., yes. You did, and you did for, the whole... for that. And I, and I did not know how to drive. You never learned how to drive? I never did. I would, no. There was, see, that, so the thing is, I spent a lot of time doing comics and was really good at them, but other things got pushed to the wayside, like learning how to drive. You didn't get a, I didn't you actually didn't, learn how to drive until I was 26. You didn't get a driver's license when you were 16? No. Wow, was it? Were you, I think were you, my parents took me out in one on one lesson. I like hit a parked car or something, and we both decided to give up. <laughs> were you scared? I mean, are you uncomfortable at the wheel? I was at first. I mean, well, I'm still not that great, but uh, you know, but I'm I'm okay now. So you come it, to- basically, I, I ended up getting the license because I was working on the L word, and at first it was fine. I just kind of found like a place to live that was walking distance from the office and would sort of bum rides from people. I mean, it was kind of shitty, but that was what I did. But then uh, I realized I absolutely had to learn how to drive when Eileen was like, okay, so you're going to come to Vancouver with us and, and work on production. I was like, oh, great. And I was like, fuck, like I, I have to learn. Like there's no way to get around Vancouver you know, if I didn't know how to drive. So that, so then I finally ended up hearing about some guy at a driving school who would, like, take you on the route that the driving test that the DMV takes you on so you can, like, know how to prepare for it. And I, yeah, managed to get my license. Okay, so you did that. And so we'll talk about uh, working on the L Word and being involved in this collaborative environment uh, you know, episode to episode with this group of writers. Like, what was that experience like for you? I mean, it was really just a dream job. You know, it was my first real job out of college. And 
And it all happened so fast that it was just super exciting to go from, you know, sort of scraping by in Brooklyn after first graduating to then, you know, living this fancy life in LA and, and being surrounded by these really amazing, talented people and, and to be sitting in a room and just coming with ideas and also just to suddenly be working in fiction, which I had never done before. And that was, you know, so there were sort of two aspects, the collaboration and the fact that I was now creating fictional stories that felt entirely new. And I loved it. And I loved, you know, stepping outside and there being palm trees and riding the Ferris wheel. And it just, yeah. It was, Wait, there was a was Ferris wheel? Well, it was our offices were in Santa Monica, and oh. so yeah, like, what studio? So I lived right by the pier, and <laughs> uh, and I would go and ride the Ferris wheel alone and feel <laughs> filled with the spirit of life. I was picturing it was fantastic. I was picturing some sort of like corporate campus where like it was a perk or something. Like you can ride the Ferris. Wheel. No, 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 not exactly. So, but that show made some noise. I feel like that show broke some ground. I remember hearing like I didn't watch it, but I remember. Like hearing friends of mine talking about it, you know, uh, did you feel, did you have a sense of that? Did you suddenly find yourself because, uh, you know, obviously the comic books were successful and got published, but they didn't have, they didn't make the noise that like a television show makes in the culture. Oh, nowhere near. I mean, the, yeah, the L word was the type of thing where like you'd mention it to anybody and they would know what it is, which I guess is the definition of a hit show. Um, that, you know, it's something that people are talking about and it felt incredibly exciting to be part of that. And to just feel like I was contributing to that and, so and, and taking stories from my own life and, you know, being able to talk about things that were exciting to me or interesting to me or that I thought, was, thought were important. What about criticism? I mean, because that's the thing about this is that when you start, when you sort of go out there and you talk about this stuff, um, it's sort of like these are hot button issues. People have opinions and there's got to be some people who thought like it wasn't represented properly or it wasn't this or it wasn't that. Like, did you feel that? Oh, of course. And and I was, you know, one of the people before I wrote for the show that was sitting at home with a group of people watching it, you know, sort of talking trash back at the television screen. Like, yeah. oh, my God, that's so ridiculous. And these aren't lesbians. But that's that was part of the fun, you know. Right. And that was part of what was great is that it brought that it created these conversations and got people excited. I mean, it's people I think most people that watched it both loved and hated it in this, you know, at the same time. Um, everyone had an opinion and, uh, and, you know, of course it's a television show. Um, so it's ridiculous that anyone would think that all of a sudden, just cause it's a show about lesbians, it's not going to be like attractive people flipping about being rich. I mean, that's what most TV is. Right. Um, well, but it's also, but, uh, but it's also but it was like, also much more and it did, it did focus on a lot of, you know, important issues. Well, but I, and it, like, it was, like specifically with regard to like depictions of, uh, like homosexual relationships or just like gay people in general on television. You know, you think about like Ellen coming out on her show to like where we are now. Like there's definitely been like a rapid evolution in terms of the, how these things are depicted. Um, like it seems like the culture, you know, wouldn't allow for certain things and would allow for others. And it, it almost, you know, I, I suspect, and I'm, you can probably already do this, like if you have an encyclopedic enough understanding, but that, you know, you'll one day look back on those early, uh, depictions and they'll seem almost clownish. Do you know? Do you know what I'm saying? Like they won't seem. I mean, it's like a it's a soap opera. It's ultimately a, a soap opera television show. So I think it's it was always kind of feeding off of 
a clownish, campy. Well, but I don't mean uh, I don't mean the L word specifically. You know, but I, I just but mean, like, mean in, I mean broadly, like in broad- terms of political issues. Yeah, I mean stuff starts to seem silly. Like you watch, I mean, queer as folk, I feel like almost suffers more from that because it came before the L word. So the gay issues are just really, really hit you over the head on that show. But I, I mean, I still adore that show and. Uh, and yeah, I mean, everything has its place in history. It's impossible to look at anything and not see it in the context of its time. Yeah. Well, and it's like, you know, it's like that. getting it right. I guess there's that's you have to put that in quotes, but like trying to accurately depict and, and it could be anything, you know, but getting like a, that kind of real life feel onto the like from the page to the screen is uh, really hard to do. I guess it would happen more if it were easy. But uh, I mean, I will say that one of the criticisms of the L word, at least that I had or heard people saying coming from New York where like, oh, these these lesbians with their long nails and their hair and well who are these? These lesbians don't exist. But then I moved to LA and those lesbians absolutely exist. They were everywhere. Oh yeah. And it suddenly felt very accurate. Yeah, I mean no, that's the thing. You know, like uh, there's not just w- one type. <laughs> sure. I'm looking at uh and I, we were joking about this before we came on the air, but like in my my customary panic before I interview anyone, I was like racing to do research and I have the Wikipedia page opened uh to the transgender uh entry. <laughs> <laughs> just, Wikipedia has like just a transgender. Uh you know, I'm page? just like, I'm just trying to get straight on my terminology because like I'm and I like to think I'm an open-minded person. I'm a live and let live. I, I could care less, but I uh-huh. I'm, I'm also deficient in terms of my understanding of this stuff because it's not in my immediate uh, experience, you know? Sure, so yeah. I'm, I'm looking at, like, the identities, uh, and it says agender, androgene, bigender, cisgender, genderqueer, mm-hmm. hegira, pan-rider, I mean, like, third Wait, gender. There's so, yeah. There, <laughs> yeah. No, I know on. all of those. I, I know. So, but um, there's a lot to consider, and, uh, you know, there's just a lot of different ways to be and i'm also now thinking of like that recent news story that broke on the internet where like facebook was now allowing for like over a (laughs) hundred like gender definitions and like listen i'm all for people being able to live however they want to live but at some point it's like my god like this is getting to be absurd (laughs) trying to keep track of all this like do you ever do well it's just like our conversation about the fluidity of of sexuality i mean i really believe that gender is a is a fluid experience for many people and it's pretty bizarre that, you know, our whole society is divided into such strict divisions of male and female. Uh, I mean, whether you're talking about an internal identity or even physically, I mean, most people do fall somewhere on the spectrum. Yeah. What is this? I mean, a lot more than we are aware of. We don't really even know what's going on inside of our bodies. We know what we see superficially in terms of genitals, but that's just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. Like, bodies are extremely complicated and hormones are constantly changing and everyone's brain is different. So it's just way more complex than, than people are led to believe. Or people want to believe. That's the thing. People, yeah. people like fixed things. They want, you know, or some people do anyway. You know, like they're not a great... And we've just created such weird ideas of like what's feminine and what's masculine. And it's, yeah, it's pretty bizarre. Um, so what is cisgender? Forgive me for being ignorant, but like what, what does that mean? Cissexual. So the word cisgender actually came into, was coined um, maybe like around 2006, 2007, and only very recently within like the last, I'd say a year to six months, has become something that's kind of entered the mainstream. And it's basically a word to refer to someone who's, internal sense of identity matches what they were assigned at birth. So, for instance, I was assigned female at birth. I identify as female. I'm cisgender. Somebody that is trans 
was maybe assigned male at birth. They identify as female, are female, so they're transgender. Even if they still have the parts? Yes. Okay, so transgender doesn't mean you've had, like, reassignment surgery or anything like that. It just Surgery, whatever surgery you have is a completely different phenomenon from your own, from identity and how you identify. How you identify, okay. okay. So some people may want surgery, some people may not, and that's a separate subject. Right. Okay. But it's so like the it, idea that you wouldn't become male or female until you have surgery is wrong. So you can be a, you can have you can have a penis but be a woman. Yes. See that's I think that's something that like the average Joe in America probably is like, huh? You know, like uh, that's, yeah, it's, that's, it's confusing. It's confusing. Um, it's confusing because people aren't you know educated about it. And but I think that that's changing. I mean, now it's like my sister you know, and her friends will, will go on OkCupid and they'll, they'll show me these um, profiles of guys, just regular, you know, straight guys living in Brooklyn being like, I'm cisgender, blah, blah, blah. Like, they're just throwing around the lingo like it's anything. And so I think everything's changing. And I think, you know, the more visibility there is and people will be educated and will understand and it won't be that big of a deal. As, soon as, as soon as this conversation's done, I'm going to go tell my wife that I'm cisgender. And, and and my parents, I'm going to freak them out. <laughs> Call yeah, them. you should. They, they won't know what it means. I'm just going to tell them. I'm going to email them and just be like, I want you to know that I'm cisgender. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. So the, when did the L, were you on the L word till it ended? No, I was on it for seasons three and four. Seasons three and four. And then what happened? And then I ended up, that was when I switched over to Simon and & Schuster and ended up spending the next year sort of solidly finishing inking likewise. And then those books came out. And so, did, were you done like with the TV thing? Were you burnt out, or was it like, uh, you know, I want to go work on my books? I, you know, or like, I, I just really wanted to finish my books. You know, in that phase of time, I wasn't done with television at all, and was actually really excited a couple of years later to join um, the HBO show How to Make It in America. Yeah, so you got that then. Yeah, and that was great because it was a completely different experience. I mean, that was very much a dude show. But I found that sort of refreshing to be working on something really different and and in some ways close to my experience because it was people in their 20s in Brooklyn, but in some ways very much not my experience because it was mainly straight guys. So, how, so a bunch of cisgender dudes in Brooklyn? A bunch of cisgender <laughs> dudes in Brooklyn, exactly. <laughs> so how did you get that show? How did you get on that? Um uh, that was, uh, I think that someone recommended me to the showrunner, Jill Soloway, and, and I went through a series of meetings with her and the creator, Ian Edelman, and, you know, gave them my samples. And Why do I know Jill Soloway's her. name? I feel like Jill Soloway's on my Twitter feed or something. She, I mean, she's amazing. She she wrote on Six Feet Under. She had a movie out called Afternoon Delight. She has a new series now called Transparent. She's an amazing she's person. Get, she's getting it done. Okay. Um, yeah. So you, did you and you moved to New York to do that? That was a New York-based show. No, that actually wrote in Los Angeles and then filmed in New York. And then film, okay. And so when the like, just so people listening who might have an interest in TV writing understand, like you're in the writers' room, you're cranking out these episodes, uh, you know, collaborating with the other writers on staff, and the showrunner is sort of you know running the show. So like how like how like, how do the basic mechanics of uh, an episode work? Like two people are the primary writers on it and then everybody else workshops it and then the showrunner makes the final call. Like how does it actually go down? Well, so basically on a show like The L Word, the creator and the showrunner were the same person. So that's Eileen Shaken. 
And so she basically called all the shots, organized all the meetings, and everything was sort of catered to her voice. And, and it was almost like we were, you know, she respected our contributions, but we were ultimately there to sort of help her tell her story. Um, How to Make It in America, the creator was Ian Edelman, um, but he had never written for television before. So that's why Jill Soloway, who had a lot of experience, came on as the showrunner, somebody to sort of run the writer's room and to help organize, you know, everything that goes into creating a television show. So in some ways she was like the boss, but she was also in the service of Ian's voice and Ian's story. So it was ultimately his show. And then, uh, and then Uh, when you go on set, like you go up to Vancouver or what have you, when the writers go up there, that's to like do script work in the moment, like, you know, in sort of like an almost improvisational manner like to try to help things sort of i mean most of that last minute stuff ends up being done by like ian or eileen like the because they they'll do a pass or do a rewrite on all of the scripts so even if i write a script and my name is on it it will sort of go through uh you know ian or eileen will sort of have the final say because it want you know you want it to be in their voice and you want it to be consistent and it's and right. it's their show. Sure. So, uh, you know, when I was up in, LA, uh, up in Vancouver, I was there primarily because we were actually still writing episodes midway through the this, this season, midway through shooting. Uh, okay. How to Make It in America, I wasn't that involved in production. I came on set to watch them shoot my episode for fun, but I wasn't really needed because all the writing was done before production started. So, and you're making good money writing for TV in ways that you might not in publishing or at least not oh know. yeah and i mean and that's been really great too because i i probably would not be able to i mean i most certainly wouldn't be able to have the time to work on the creative projects i wanted to like my comics or the novel if it weren't for the for you know the the space writing for television gave me in terms of money so i would be able to make a lot of money writing for tv and then take the next year to do what i wanted uh, okay, you know, so, but living you, modestly of course i was going to say you were aware of this you're like i'm socking this away because you know oh yeah definitely i mean because there's nothing more precious than time and so if you make a lot of money in a in a short amount of time which you do on television you know the best thing to do is save it and then use that time to create something of your own like a novel yeah. So how did that come about? Uh, so I you, basically, well, I first... You're like, I haven't, you're like, I haven't, I haven't yet mastered this. So I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that was part of it. I mean, I, I wanted to try something new. I just, I love, you know, all forms of writing and, and I wanted, and you know, I had a few friends that were writing novels and I would always get really jealous and envious every like time who? they would talk about it. Who's your, who's your, um, who are your friends? Uh, well, you know, my... My ex-girlfriend from high school was working on a novel. Um, I was friends with the late Ned Vizzini, who um, oh, sure. was an amazing novelist. I, I, and, I, I, uh, I knew Ned. I talked to him on the show. and he knew Yeah, him, he's knew a wonderful person. Yeah. Um, and so, they, you know, we, I would hang out with them, and they'd talk about working on their novels, and I would just think, like, oh, my God, well, that sounds so fun. You go home, and it's like I was kind of burnt out on the labor that goes into creating a comic in terms of just, like, the drawing, like, just the sweat of drawing nonstop. And I just, yeah, and, and also the idea that it was fiction, like, the idea that you could sit down and just write absolutely anything you wanted felt so exciting and liberating, and anyway, so just this envy started to, to build until it reached this breaking point where it's like, I have to write a novel. And I ended up having this idea that, that I also sort of only saw working as a novel. 
And, and so that's, then I just. And that's Adam. And that's Adam. And so then I, I started Adam in 2007. Okay. So speaking of uh, like the fluidity of gender, you know, being a woman writing a male character, uh, was there any, was any difficulty in making that leap? Well, I would say no. Um, and I actually almost found it amusing because it is a, a book that is about a cisgender boy who ends up passing as a trans man. So, <laughs> a cis- <laughs> so to explain that a little bit more, it's about a, you know, what other people would call a regular, normal guy. I mean, those aren't the right words, but, you know, run-of-the-mill boy, teenage boy, who ends up passing as a trans man, a man that was born a woman. And so the idea that I was a woman writing as a man sort of amused me that it, you know, that even if somebody were, that if someone were to find something different in that, it's sort of like, well, what makes my voice necessarily female and why couldn't that be in a boy's head and et cetera. I just thought it sort of added to the interest of that. But I actually found his, his voice very natural to write. And um, when I first conceived of the book, I actually imagined that he would be a um, man in his mid-30s who ends up passing as a trans man. And when I sort of in my head just started to try writing the book, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I couldn't write in the voice of this mid-30s man. That felt very unnatural to me. I also realized I hated this person. And <laughs> never, never, first... never a good sign, P.S. Yes. <laughs> and so when I refigured it as a teenage boy, you know, a sort of inexperienced, uh, sheltered teenage boy, it, it all came together and it felt... It, 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 it just, you know, it really started to flow out after that. Okay. And so like out in the world, this is a plausible scenario that could take place. Like you could be a cisgender guy. <laughs> and I mean, I'm, 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 I'm sincere. Like, could yeah, you, yeah. this could happen? Like, well, uh, so basically one of the inspirations for this concept was the fact that I had in the early 2000s, I had a lot of friends who were lesbians uh, who ended up transitioning into men, transitioning into straight men. And in this process, a lot of them would sort of resemble teenage boys. Um, part, part of that is just physical because when you're a female taking testosterone, you're literally going through a second puberty. You start to get acne, you, you know, you start growing facial hair for the first time. You have like, you know, or some people have the sort of soft feminine features of a girl, but then those start to masculinize the way a, a teenage boys does. So, okay. So and you're, then you're also, talking about, you're talking about lesbians who wanted to become male. I'm talking about lesbians who realized that they were male, identified as male, and right. then took the steps to make that change physically. To make the change. Okay. Yeah, there we go. Such as taking hormones or getting top surgery, having their breasts removed, uh, various steps like that. Okay. And so in some ways they physically resemble teenage boys. And I also noticed a thing where some of them started to act like teenage boys too, to sort of take on this almost Peter Pan, like an almost misogynistic uh, attitude. And this is of course not all trans men. I, you know, I knew a lot of uh, trans men that also transitioned uh, with dignity, but there were some that, you know, took on this very teenage boy brash sort of 
sexist attitude, which I thought was sort of fascinating to go from being a lesbian to being very much, you know, this sort of bro or this person that really indulged in, in all that masculinity or male privilege had to offer. Testosterone, man. It's a, it's a, it's a <laughs> well, day, I, wouldn't it's say, I would, <laughs> I would not blame it on testosterone. I would, <laughs> you know, I think there's a lot more at work, but sure. I mean, that could be part of it. You know, you're having new feelings and emotions rushing through your body. Um, maybe your, your sex drive is changing. You're looking at women differently or looking at men differently. I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm sure it can be a, an overwhelming experience. Yeah, I can't even imagine. That's crazy. And so, like, when you get the the physical reassignment surgery, and this is something I feel like I should probably know, but like, did these women who then want to become, who identify as men and then want to become men, they have a sex change operation and they have a penis then? Well, so like I said before, you know, having taking testosterone or having surgery isn't what makes them a man. And so I think that that's like a misconception, you know, somebody can identify as a man, not do anything to change their body and should still be respected as a man. For people that do want to, you know, change their body physically, they might take hormones or they might um, get surgery, have their breasts removed. And there are some bottom surgeries um, available where you can, you know, change your genitals. But I do know that a lot of uh, trans men are do not want to do this because the surgeries are not that great in terms of function and sensation yet. Uh, for some people, that doesn't matter. They want the surgery anyway. And for other people, they decide to hold off. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I should know more. I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling very, <laughs> Well, now you do. <laughs> yeah. This is a learning experience. I'm feeling deficient. But um, okay. So... The, you know, back to Adam, uh, the writing of the book. I mean, it seems like it was this really creatively freeing experience. And I can sort of understand how when you're working in the in either television or in comics, there's something defined about that form that is sort of wide open about writing a novel. And, you know, that wide openness when it comes to writing long form fiction can be uh, a burden, but it can also be uh, liberating. It seems like you, the latter was the case for you. You had a lot more. Yeah, I mean... It definitely, it it was super liberating. You know, I was so used to, in my autobiographical comic saying, okay, well, I'm going to take my junior year of high school, I know what happened at the beginning, middle and end, and I'm going to turn it into a comic. And I found that process very fascinating, sort of taking my life and, and turning it into this alternative black and white cartoon world. But with the novel, part of what I found so exciting was the sense that it could go anywhere, that I could tap into areas in my subconscious that I wasn't totally aware of and, and explore ideas um, that way. But I also did give myself certain limits. I know that a fault of some first novels can be that people try to be too grand in scope. They say, okay, well, I'm going to tell like a sprawling family history that goes fans continents. And, and I wanted to make sure that I had something manageable book was going to take place in one summer, and I wanted it to have a sort of classic coming-of-age arc. So what happened within that arc, I wasn't entirely sure, but I had certain parameters set that, you know, think in a lot of ways made the comic, I mean, made the book feel very doable and um, and sort of opened me up to explore other things deeper since I wasn't worried about well, how long is this going to be or where is it going to end uh, it, it, the way I would if it was uh, completely open. And, but, you know, and then like the, the screenwriting work that, you've, that you had done, did it help you when it came to novel structure? I think definitely. I mean, you know, screenplays definitely have a, or a lot of them, you know, have a, 
have a pretty tight arc in terms of building momentum and then denouements and all that. And I definitely had all of that in mind as I was writing. You know, I didn't want to feel too beholden to, um, uh, you know, I didn't want to feel beholden to any formula, but I wanted to sort of take what I think does work about those formulas and use them to my advantage. And so and you, and were you thinking at all uh, cinematically about adaptation or anything? That had to be in the back of your mind. Like, were you seeing this as a movie when you were writing it, or were you thinking strictly in literary terms? I mean, I wasn't, you know, jumping ahead to, oh, how is, you know, what will the screenplay version of this be? But I think I definitely, when I finished it, I was like, oh, you know, I think this would be a great movie, and I think it would be super fun to make a movie of it. Um, absolutely. Are you going to write, but, you know, you gonna write the want... script? Oh yeah, I would have to write it. Definitely. But I mean, do you have, do you have plans? I mean, do you have like, is this something you're just going to do? Or are you waiting to like, see if you can get a deal and get the thing off? It would be great if, if we could find someone to do it and get the right team together, you know, for sure. Um, uh, you know, but it's ultimately it was, it was a story that I wanted to tell, as a novel and, you know, and there's other stories that I might think should exist in their primary form as a screenplay or as a movie. Uh, but for this particular story, it, it felt like its core form was a novel. And I think a lot of that had to do with something that I love about fiction, which is the way in which we sort of imagine these characters in our minds and, and turn them into real people in our minds. And I wanted to be able to do that. And the sales process, like when you took it out, was there any resistance uh, or did you, did it go pretty smoothly? Well, initially, when my agent and I talked about whether or not we should sell the book as YA or adult, because, you know, the protagonist is a teenage boy. It's written in the limited third person, which means it's very much, it's third person, but it's very much inside uh, Adam, the 17-year-old boy's head. Everything is through his perspective. And it does have a very classic coming-of-age arc to it. Um, so we tried to sell it as YA, and it kind of freaked people out. And <laughs> I, th I think that that was in part because there is uh, explicit sex in the book. But a lot of YA can get pretty explicit and, and have swear words now. I think ultimately what scared people is that, you know, I really sort of expose and, and talk about the queer social scene that I was in in a very honest way like you know i think in ya people still really feel like gay characters or queer characters need to have a holiness to them uh they get very uncomfortable if there's basically shitty gay people right and i'm sorry but i know a lot of shitty gay people <laughs> and this book is sort of you know was me kind of describing the world that i was living in and that and that meant really just um, being honest with that and not just, you know, and not sort of only criticizing people around me, but looking at myself and the ways that I acted and, and sort of trying to look critically at that. And um, anyway, but then we, you know, we sold it as a doll. And I do hope the teenagers read it. I think it's a book that could mean a lot to teenagers, um, could get them thinking about issues of gender that they might otherwise not be exposed to. And I think that that's a great I, thing. Yeah. Well, I, uh, and I'm, I'm imagining like next you're going to like, what are you going to direct a film or like get into sculpture? <laughs> I'm working on a children's book actually. You are. Okay, good. I want to yeah. make, make sure we, like, you, you master every art form before. <laughs> um, well, that's cool. It's a children's book. That's sort of a different, that's a different gear, obviously. You know? Well, now I miss drawing. So I want to go back to, uh, to drawing and, and I want to do these sort of watercolor images All right. for that. 
Okay. And like, is the children's book, does it have anything to do with like gender or anything or is it just straight up like? It doesn't. It's more of a, it's more of a sibling story. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm deep into, I have a three-year-old, so I read a shitload of children's books. Cool. <laughs> Send it over. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they're amazing. Like there's nothing, there's just nothing quite like a children's book. Yeah. There is something really heartwarming when you see like your kid connecting to a story and you know they just experience it so pure and they have like total oh, yeah. total focus and they buy it the whole thing the whole thing it's all real totally yeah you know, it's like yeah it's, it's pretty cool and it's like easy when you i think you know before i had kids uh or a kid i was like uh you know what eh, what is this you know it's hard to for, for some reason it was hard for me to access but the experience of having a child and like seeing that happen for her is pretty awesome Oh, totally. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to have kids and read them books. That just seems like one of the most fun parts. Yeah. Well, it's been fun talking with you. I appreciate your patience with my, uh, you know, uh, what is it, remedial gender understanding and everything. No, else. I'm glad that, I mean, it's awesome that you're interested. And I was super excited to come on this show. So thank you. Okay. There you go. That is Ariel Schrag. Go get her novel, Adam. It's out there now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can find her online at arielschrag.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle's at Ariel Schrag. She's on Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, uh, you name it. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget about that app, the Other People app, the official app of this podcast. It's free. Go get it. Download it to your device. It's available wherever apps are available. And uh, then once you have the app, you can sign up for premium right there within the app and access the full archives of the show. Every single episode including conversations with uh, all sorts of different authors like Jonathan Lethem, Tom Parada, uh, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, Eden Lepucky. Uh, you know, the list goes on. So go get the app. It's a good thing. It's the best way to listen. And, uh, you know, I don't know about the, uh, the social anxiety, the sense of alienation I feel in these particular uh, academic contexts, parental contexts. Uh, yeah, I sometimes feel like an alien. I just feel like I'm like uh, from outer space. Like, how does how does this make sense to anyone? And yet it seems to, but it doesn't for me. So maybe like that means I'm a new soul. Everyone always wants to be an old soul. Everyone always talks about you know, being an old soul. Maybe I'm a new soul. Maybe that's why uh, things are difficult for me. It's my first time here. Maybe I, you know, maybe I'm an old soul on different planets. Is that possible? I don't know. Who wants to be an old soul? That seems exhausting. Please remember that E.M. Forster died of a massive stroke and that H.L. Mencken died of a heart attack. That's it for now. Thanks once again to Ariel Schreg. Go get her book. Pick it up. It's called Adam. Thanks again to you guys, or thanks to you guys as always for listening. I really appreciate it. Uh, I shall return soon enough with another conversation with another uh, writerly type human being. And uh, it's possible that when I do... I will be reeling from yet another episode of acute social anxiety. You know, what does it say about me that I feel most comfortable sitting alone in a room, talking into a microphone, having intimate conversations with complete strangers in remote locations? (laughs) 